Getting around a city or getting around the country, transportation plays an essential role for Canadians. And this year alone has shown just how bad climate change has gotten in Canada. But in the drive to reduce emissions, these things look like they're on a collision course. I'm Adam Toy. And I'm Dave McIver. And this is Why. There's nothing quite like piling into a comfy SUV for a road trip, wandering across a region to see attractions like the world's largest truck or a giant hockey stick. Ditto getting on a flight to visit friends and family in another part of this vast country. And through the pandemic, opening that cardboard box of online purchases dropped off on your front step, it's a bit of a rush. And all of those activities have made Canada's emissions problem worse. We continue our mini-series looking at climate warming emissions in Canada, turning our attention to the second highest source in this country. Transportation. According to Environment and Climate Change Canada, transportation in the country now accounts for 25% of emissions. For most Canadians, the most important thing to know is the bulk of it comes from the trucks we drive and the freight trucks. That's Josipa Petrunic, president and CEO of the Canadian Urban Transit Research and Innovation Consortium. So that also includes SUVs as light duty platforms. And so nobody's getting away scot-free here. Unfortunately, the bulk of it is from our cars and from freight. So all that stuff we buy on Amazon that shows up to our door, that's where it's coming from. Uh, then the rest is composed, of course, air, shipping, transit, and other vehicles. But that big piece of the pie is trucks, trucks, and trucks. And so when you're, you're saying trucks, SUVs, and 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 freight, so uh, you're talking like semis, uh, are, is that what has accounted for growth in transportation and in, in greenhouse gas emissions? Because both uh, as an absolute value and also as a, as a, as a, percent of Canada's emissions, those numbers have grown up or have, have just increased in the last 30 years in transportation. Yeah, absolutely. So on the freight side, um, definitely trucking has increased uh, substantially in the last couple decades. And that has to do with a lot of the growth of our economy, the growth of our population, but also the growth of our consumer wealth and the stuff we buy and the stuff we expect to have and the oranges in the middle of winter that we expect to be on our shelves at Sobeys. Uh, that is where that freight trucking is coming from, but also natural resources, right? Uh, as there have been challenges with pipelines and so on, getting some of those natural resources onto rail and then in some cases trucks has been part of the growth of that freight landscape. And trucks are really hard to electrify. They're really hard to render zero emissions. The profit margins can be very low. So as population grows, demand grows, trucking grows, pollution grows. But there is another component, and that is our cars. And over the last 30 years in particular, the last 20 years, Canadians have moved away from light duty cars, the sedans, the small uh, vehicles, and we've moved more and more to sports utility vehicles and trucks. And frankly, the vast majority of us don't need those vehicles, but it's keeping up with the Joneses and it's seen as the kind of commercial consumer thing that you need with a family. Uh, and those SUVs are not efficient. So the reality is when you look at the efficiency measures of SUVs and trucks, they have not come under the same emission standards in the last 25 years that light duty cars have. And so as a result, although cars are getting more efficient and hybrids and everybody loves a good Prius, SUVs and trucks actually haven't improved that much and they haven't gotten that substantially better, that much better in the last years, and yet we're buying more of it. So when you look at that piece of the pie, it's we're buying more SUVs and trucks. They're not that clean and they haven't been increasing in their cleanliness substantially in the last couple of decades. 
and we're buying more stuff that freight has to deliver to us on 18 wheelers. It, it's interesting. So the the sense that I've had driving around various uh, cities around this country, um, seeing the sense that I, I had of seeing more SUVs, more pickup trucks uh, being driven, that's 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 follows the data. The, the data proves that out. There are more of those on the road. Okay. Yeah, and maybe I mean I can give you a little bit of history. It might not be as interesting to your your listeners, but the brief history of it is. When you look at emission standards for vehicles, like it all started in the 1970s with the OPEC oil crisis, and that had nothing to do with the environment and it had everything to do with Americans wanting to secure their oil locally. So suddenly you got the first emission standards known as the CAFE standards, the corporate average fuel economy standards. And if you look at the 1980s, like when we had that first economic recession due to the OPEC oil crises, you started to get American manufacturers producing smaller cars, more efficient engines. Chrysler suddenly dis discovered the possibility of an efficient engine. And it was the time when all these Asian car companies started coming into the market, small engine companies. And it had everything to do with the price of oil and how much gasoline cost you. Well, when we look through the 1990s, a lot of those emission standards started to drop off. Trucks came back. The minivan was created. SUVs came back because we discovered a lot more oil, a lot more natural gas. The constraint wasn't there. Uh, and where you start to see people buying, again, smaller vehicles and Priuses took off and Toyota hybrids took off, it was in the middle 2000s when the economy was booming and gasoline was through the roof and people were upset about how much they were spending on a tank of gas. So environment aside, emission standards started to get us some smaller vehicles. Then they got lax in the 1990s. Then those emission standards really didn't improve at all in the 2000s, but the economy made us go to smaller vehicles. Then the economy bust and we pumped all this money into the economy. And it took until Barack Obama in 2012 to actually tighten emission standards again, because SUVs were going through the roof, minivans were being purchased left, right and center. And we all thought we needed a truck to go to the 7-Eleven. So that said, it's really only in the last 10 years that those American corporate average fuel economy standards have targeted SUVs, trucks and all cars. And it's only in the last four years, really, that SUVs and trucks have come under that and heavy duty vehicles like buses and 18 wheelers have started to come under those regulations. We went through a bit of a hiatus with President Trump where those regulations got thrown out the window again. Now they're coming back. But you can see that whole history explains why we really don't have very efficient SUVs and trucks and our trucking industry and our bus and school bus industry are just now catching up to this whole landscape of zero emissions vehicles. It's great to get that history of policy. I was wondering what your thoughts are on the Canadian government's policy to halt the state of light duty vehicles with internal combustion engines. What will that do for emissions and is that goal aspirational or realistic? Yeah, well, you know, I've often said before, I come from an immigrant family and in the world of carrots and sticks, I go for the stick very often, uh, but nonetheless, there are carrots and sticks. And so the carrots government has tried, like here's a bunch of incentives, go buy a Tesla, go buy a plug-in Prius, go buy a Nissan Leaf and we'll give you some thousands of dollars off. Yeah, but the cars are quite expensive. And frankly, to buy a new car, you're already kind of a rich Canadian, like you're a middle class, you might not feel it, but you actually are based on the median income. So having said that, those incentives just alone won't get us to a landscape where by 2030, 2040, 2050, everybody can show up at the dealership lot and afford an electric car. So they're pricey. Then on the flip side, establishing a kind of de facto ban means that manufacturers are stuck having to do it all. 
but their consumers are not showing up asking for all things electric. They're just not. If they were, then we wouldn't be selling year on year more and more SUVs of gasoline propulsion. So you've kind of put this quasi ban out there without the sticks that would ultimately get Canadians to start penny pinching and making shifts. And what are some of those policy sticks? Well, number one, uh, we need to start pricing roadways. So the question is, is the, is the goal to save the environment and cut pollution? Yes. Then the answer has to be cut the number of cars on the road. Doesn't matter if they're electric or not, cut the number of cars on the road because everything comes with that. Road space, real estate, congestion, loss of economic productivity, all those things add up to a lot of pollution. So you got to cut cars on the road. And the only way to cut cars on the road naturally or organically is to give people a price point and say, this apple doesn't cost a dollar anymore. It now costs $5. Make your own household economic choice. And you do it incrementally over the course of five to 10 years. Where's our road pricing in Canada? Apart from 407 toll road and a couple toll roads in BC and Quebec, there no road is priced here. And there should be road pricing to start Canadians in the economic habit of thinking about the fact that driving my car, no matter what kind of car it is into downtown Toronto or Montreal or Calgary or Saskatoon, is going to cost me two or three or five or $50. Now I can start to make a choice about not only where I live, but what kind of car I buy. Because when we price roadway, we can also say, okay, you get a free ride if it's hybrid or electric for the next five to 10 years. That's going to start driving people to think about not just the ticket price of the car, but the savings they get from using that roadway. Those kinds of combined incentives, if you want to call them the stick mechanism of policy, need to be used. But very few governments want to price things uh, because it's bad politics in general. Without that, though, it's not going to happen. And the flip side is when you start telling people they can't afford to drive a car, well, how are they going to get to work? Not everybody can pick up and move. So you need to start pumping a lot more money into transit. And it's great that the federal government recently announced billions of dollars for transit and zero emissions transit. It's the right pathway. It is the billions of dollars we need. But that's just billions of dollars to convert the current fleet. The current fleet isn't good enough. The current fleet is you're a sardine in a can on a bus and rush hour traffic in Toronto. It is not good enough. So it needs to be like add an exponent to make it better. We need high frequency rail, high speed rail. We need rapid buses. We need on-demand shuttles. We need buses that are within a five to 10 minute walk of everybody in this country. So until we get that kind of mass European style transit system, with the sticks of making it unpalatable to drive on the road, you're not going to get a societal shift. You're going to get a year come around where technically manufacturers aren't allowed to sell dirty cars, but nobody can afford the clean ones. There's no adequate transit and you're going to get a lot of pissed off voters. That is not good policy for climate action. Canada spans six time zones across and is a large country to connect. There's a lot of geography to make up to move goods and people across this country. You even saw people being isolated when Greyhound shut down operations. How can the challenge of the size of this country be met with emission reductions? Mm -hmm. So is it a challenge or is it an opportunity to lead the world? It's an opportunity to lead the world. If we can do it in Canada, uh, we can do it anywhere in the world. And you know, when people are saying, well, why should Canada go first? We're just a tiny piece of the pie. Why should we all... First of all, because we have some of the best educated people. We have a great quality of life. We have great universities. If we can't figure it out, who in the world can figure this out? So for all of this geography, there's two particular areas of opportunity, I would say. First off, on the freight side. 
On the freight side, we spent a couple years looking at what's the next generation of technology in rail innovation. And one of the first things we heard, and this was like 2018, 2019, we heard from a lot of our rail operators, we don't have that many, that hydrogen is very likely going to be the zero emissions fuel for long distance. That, that makes a lot of sense from an energy perspective. But at that time, there was no national hydrogen strategy. There were no provincial hydrogen strategies. When Canadians talk about energy, and generally when Albertans talk about energy, and as an Albertan myself, I feel fully justified in saying this, we think oil. We don't think hydrogen from green electrons, from solar wind or geothermal or other sources of electricity. But that's what we need to start thinking about. So on the freight side, it is entirely feasible in this country with the amount of green electrons, 80% plus of our electricity grid are green electrons, not coal, not natural gas, but water, solar, and depending who you ask, it's green nuclear. So we've got these green electrons. They can produce a lot of hydrogen, our rail sector and our long distance freight sector require it for five time zones worth of a country. Uh, but up until this year, most provinces did not have a hydrogen strategy. Even now, 2021, after we've seen the world light on fire from Australia to British Columbia year after year, only now are we starting to get provinces emerge with a hydrogen strategy and Ontario still has no money attached to that strategy and the bulk of our provinces still have no hydrogen strategy linked to transportation. So is it difficult? Yeah, but polluting the earth, we made a lot of money so it's going to cost as much money to clean it up. It's not impossible and there's a lot of money to be made in this new natural resource sector of hydrogen for long distance freight applications. Now, the same thing goes over to the passenger side. When we look at the passenger side, again, I repeat, Canada has some of the greenest grids in the world. So our Canadian population doesn't actually live across all of Canada equivalently dispersed. So it's a bit of a myth for us to say, well, we're a huge country. Well, actually, most of our population is in a few core cities. Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, Edmonton, Calgary, throw in Winnipeg and Halifax and Ottawa, you've basically got the country, right? So it's not like this is an impossible calculus to figure out. We've got about 10 to 15 large to mid-sized cities that have generally green electrons feeding into their power network with generally good density or high density in the case of Toronto, Montreal and Vancouver in particular. Those are entirely electrifiable from a local fleet perspective and interregionally we need to build out that hydrogen network. So there is no doubt that we have the capacity to produce the hydrogen. We've been making hydrogen for decades in this country for everything but transportation, pharmaceuticals, natural resources, yada yada. How about we start applying it into the transportation sector, electrify our urban dense centers and then build out that interregional network. Uh, that is not impossible to do in a country our size. What about air transportation? Airplane engines, jet engines and propeller engines run on jet fuel, fossil fuel. So decarbonizing them is an immense challenge. Can you even make electric planes or does it look like they'll need alternative fuels? There's two areas where air travel, it, fundamentally, it's a heavy duty application, right? With extreme rugged conditions, uh, not I'm going to say not that different from shipping and rail. It is different from a safety factor. It is different from a perception factor. And there's some clear aerodynamics involved. But nonetheless, you're talking about from a physics perspective, a heavy duty engine that needs to carry a huge amount of load under extremely rugged conditions over many, many years with a high, high safety factor. So what is the most likelihood 
Uh, right now, in the early days that we're at, there are two kind of low-hanging fruit opportunities to test out. Outside of the biofuels, like the biodiesels, where you start to mix some agricultural product that burns a little bit more cleanly into your otherwise jet fuel that is dirty, on the alternative side, you do have the electrification of the low hanging fruit, which is the taxiing. So it's not so much electrifying the propulsion to take off in small aircraft, like two seaters, four seaters, that is entirely feasible. We could we can envision that that will happen in terms of small, small aircraft being battery electric. And there's already pilot models out there. But for heavy duty aircraft, like my Air Canada flight to Calgary to see my mom, there's a lot of wasted uh, jet fuel and propulsion fuel on taxing, idling, moving, not negotiating the runway. And that's actually a substantial amount of GHGs. It's not the big part of the picture where they're flying across the skies, but it's enough GHGs that it would make an impact. So if we were to electrify those taxing aspects of, of air travel, the idling aspects, and also the inefficient movement around tarmacs at times, that would be a large portion of it. The second area is for the longer haul travel, but still short haul in the grand scheme of things. The Porter Airlines, you know, quick jaunt over to Ottawa from Toronto. It's feasible to envision a hydrogen future for that. That is feasible. It's also feasible to envision a renewable natural gas future. So as renewable natural gas comes more and more online, well, you know, our poop has a purpose. When it biodegrades, it creates methane. If you capture that stuff, you put it into aircraft, you could have a fuel type there, and there's already work underway for that. And it's not just that. I mean, there's agricultural feedstock, there's landfill. There's a lot of junk that decomposes and produces a lot of methane. Captured renewable natural gas could be a source combined with hydrogen because hydrogen is more energy dense in storage than a battery on its own. And those aircraft are still heavy though, because they still take batteries plus a fuel cell stack plus a hydrogen tank, but they're lighter than an aircraft loaded with loads of heavy battery. So those are some of the lower hanging fruit. The third thing has nothing to do with the propulsion technology. It has everything to do with collaboration on optimized route paths. So there's a lot of wasted air travel, just like, you know, we think we're efficient drivers, but we circle around looking for a parking spot. Air travel uh, also has inefficient routes. And there's a lot of studies out there showing that there could be a lot more efficiency in routes and in airline collaboration to reduce, you know, hundreds of thousands of kilometers every year that just wipe GHGs out the sky. And a lot of that has to do with political, geopolitical collaboration in air travel across nation states. This Is Why is produced by me, Adam Toy, and Dave McIver. It's a national radio show and a podcast. You can reach us by email at thisiswhy at globalnews.ca and on Twitter at thisiswhy. If you like what you hear and want to hear more, make sure you subscribe to This Is Why so you never miss an episode. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. If you like what you're hearing, tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Wear a mask and get vaccinated. We'll see you soon.